Welcome to the Petro Nerds Podcast with your hosts, Trisha Curtis, CEO of Petro Nerds. This show combines upstream and midstream expertise in a Rocky Mountain showdown. All right. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Petro Nerds Podcast. This is episode 37, and today is it's Martin Luther King Jr. Day. It is Monday, January 17, 2022. Um, I am honored to have a really awesome and very special guest today. This is my first author as a guest of the podcast, and I have the author um, of the book called Unsettled, and it is his name is Stephen Coonan, and today is going to be awesome because I have, I've now listened to this book twice. I've read parts of it, admittedly. I've dove into it, but it is actually a really good audiobook if you haven't listened to it. Um, and, you know, there's a, it's called Unsettled. There's a question mark on the front of the cover. And Stephen Coonan's background is, I mean, he, wor- he is a professor in New York University. On the cover of the book, it says, former Undersecretary for Science, uh, U.S. Department of Energy under the Obama administration. So um, it, we'll get into the weeds on a number of things. Stephen Coonan certainly has the background and the credentials, but the book is fantastic. And there's a there's a couple things I always explain before I dive and start into the podcast even is um, today is, is the stock exchange is not running, but I always start with 83.84 is WTI, 85.98 is Brent, um, and 4.29 is Nat Gas. And a few topics, I mean, we have basically an hour to cover your entire book, uh, which I think we can do. Um, and hopefully listeners will go and listen to it and read it. Um, but I want to cover really the premise of the book and some of the things you get into, um, like actually how, what the impact of humans is on, on climate change. And really it's teasing out the, the degrees and levels and not the, you know, not debating on, 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 you know, is climate change happening, et cetera. But I think it's one of the big takeaways I had was uh, it's great for a lot of different listeners to listen to, to understand different perspectives and where people are coming from and really think about data. And I love data. And I want to talk about the European energy crisis to a degree and some of just the recent happenings and the influence of media and science, uh, particularly things like Bloomberg. I'd like to talk about the UN. And I'm 100%, if my, my listeners know, I'm absolutely going to talk about China a little bit. Whether or not you want to chime in, I, I think it's important. So Wow, that, we're going to have to move fast. We're going to cover all of that. We're, okay, we're going to cover a lot of Great great to have you. And thank you. Sorry for the long introduction, but thank you so much for coming on. Good. Happy to be here. Awesome. Okay. So at the top of this, I think I would, I'm going to let you sort of introduce, introduce the topic in the book. I, I, the couple things in the beginning, I think that you do a really good job is sort of, and I want to touch on this is, you know, the extreme global warming. So global warming versus sort of extreme global warming um, and climate versus weather and two basic things. So if I'm, I want to characterize this too, if I'm understanding the premise of your book, the, one of the most critical pieces of the book. It's not that you're denying that climate change um, is happening. It's not that you're denying that global warming is happening. You're questioning um, and looking at the degree to the, what's the degree that we can say without a doubt and with great certainty that humans are definitely influencing it. And not that you're even even questioning or, or ripping on the credibility of that, but it's it's the actual data and science. And one of these big points I have is is the years, um, particularly when it's the UN, all the UN reports, the IPCC reports and everything. We have this 1.5 degrees that we have to hit by 2050. And I've thought before I even read your book, what is the year that we start from? Which yeah. What is the yeah. year which we're measuring how we're supposed to hit 1.5 degrees? Right. So, with that- so, right. So, so we're concerned about the globe warming. It certainly is. And we're also concerned about humans influencing the climate, which is the long-term average of weather. One of the simplest measures of that change and the influences that humans might have upon it uh, is the average global temperature and how it's changing. Uh, 
And we, by convention, really, we measure it from 1900 or the late 18th, uh, the late 18th, 19th centuries, late 19th century, really. And if you look at the temperature today compared to what it was in 1900, it's about 1.1 degrees Celsius warmer than it was in the past. And it has been getting warmer over the past many decades, although surprisingly to many people, not at a constant rate. Actually, from 1940 to 1970, the temperature went down, even as human influences grew. And that suggests that there's a lot more complication to the story than simply humans are warming the globe. And with that 1940 to 1970, the other thing is that you you talk about a, the modeling. And, and as a, you know, I self-taught myself uh, the engineering and the geology side of the oil and gas business, and I love it. And I love I have more of an engineering mindset and I love data and I work with a ton of data. Um, but we all know that anybody who works within data and models, and admittedly, I'm sure if there's any any you know environmentalists or, or climate scientists listening to the podcast, they know that you can cherry pick at lots of different things. And in my career, I've always had to show people what a, a well looks like. Actually, you know, what does it decline? What does the production profile look like? And what does it decline? So that people can really believe me that the U.S. shale boom is happening, especially when I'd go talk about this abroad and in London or the Middle East that, hey, we actually have a shale boom going on in the U.S. It was hard for people to believe, and you showed them the data. And this data point really gets me is that, you know, so when you talk about the periods from 1940 to 1970, and we talk about which, you know, from the UN IPCC report, what dates are they starting to measure and and things like that. You also make a note or talk about in the book um, the ability to go back and use the current models we have and go back with actually data so we know what happened with the weather, we know what's happened, and then to accurately predict it. So we already have the answers and the ability that it can't accurately predict. Yeah, this is called – go ahead. I just want to say, why why is that? And and can you break that down? Well, you know, climate is really complicated. Um, It – first of all, happens on very large scales, but our computers have to describe things on a small scale. And so you have to make assumptions about clouds, for example, aerosols, and so on. The second is we don't have very good data going in the past on external influences, whether it's the changes in the sun, which are thought to be small, or more importantly, aerosols, which counteract the warming effects of greenhouse gases, and perhaps even more importantly, the natural variability, the natural sloshing back and forth of parts of the climate system, particularly the oceans. And those changes happen on decades to centuries, and it's very difficult to describe them correctly in the models. And so you can fool yourself. You can think it's a human influence when in fact it's just natural variability. And that's particularly true when you start talking about regional climates uh, as opposed to, let's say, the global properties of the climate. One of my favorite graphs is a graph of the height of the Nile River as compiled by the Egyptians from the mid-7th century up to, let's say, the 15th century. And you see it go up and down a lot every year. But even when you look at 30-year averages, which are like about the climate, they go up and down tremendously. And that's got nothing at all to do with human influences. Human population was very small 1,500 years ago. But in fact, it's got to do with the natural variability. And we got to describe that properly. And that, you say a couple things. And at the end of your book, when you're talking about, when you're talking about the 
what should we do and in policymakers and decisions and you say all us being equal which you clarify all us being equal is that it's not equal is that you should reduce co2 emissions and i i guess i really you know the fact that you explain and everyone should really listen to it because you do a really good job explaining you know the grid uh, you know, this, the temperature, thing, temperature time of when we're deciding which temperature we're using, which I still want to get in. You describe the grids and that basically you have to have a lot of assumptions. And I am quite uncomfortable with um, the reason I, I, I wanted you on the podcast and I want to do this is, is the energy crisis in Europe is a huge deal around globally. The, the, what's actually happening with an energy and policymaking is a really big deal. And, and people are, you know, falling on a sword and, and going to die on the cross on, on you know, becoming on, on climate change. And that it's not that it's, it's aspects of this are happening. It's the degree to which it is actually happening and that we can are how we're going to actually impact it. If we do all this stuff, are we going to actually have an impact? And that's where you started to get into this stuff, especially with the modeling and, and you talk about variability and things like, well, clouds aren't, aren't well taken into account. And so models have to have assumptions. And this is no different than in the oil and gas space, particularly when you're modeling a reservoir and you're getting a plug from a core that's, you know, this big, it's two inches big, and you're modeling a two mile long lateral and you're saying, okay, well, it's all the same across that two mile. It's not all the same. That's absolutely ridiculous. And the thing is, is that models, you do have to have assumption. And I guess I'm okay with that. We have models. It's, it's the, what I'm not okay with is the certainty and clarity that we 100% know. At least that's what's portrayed to most yeah. uh, yeah. Most, especially the, even the, after these reports are written. The, the science does not say the world is going to end in 12 years or whenever we hit one and a half degrees or two degrees. But, you know, the bigger question for society is, given what the models say, in fact, that it's not going to be so bad, and B, given the uncertainties in it, what should we do? And that discussion has to be a global discussion, since it's a global problem. Um, and it's got to weigh various factors, how bad it's going to get. But then also, given the things that you might be able to do, that you could do, what are the trade-offs? You know, there are 3 billion people in the world who don't have adequate energy. And getting them that energy needs to be a top priority so that they can improve their standard of living. And how do you balance that against the vague and somewhat distant risks of growing human influences on the climate. I don't think that's an easy conversation, and it's certainly not one that the politicians and the activists in the West want to have. I don't think it's an easy conversation at all. Um, and I think there's few of us who are actually willing to sort of go out on a limb and talk about these issues. And and I, for one, I've been vocal in my podcast and telling the industry uh, that they actually need to be a little more vocal about leaning less into um, less, not saying leaning less into climate change, but I think everyone's so afraid to even have a conversation like this as fear of being labeled a climate denier um, and then sort of being canceled and outcasted. And the problem is that if we can't have a, if we can't even have a dialogue and conversation, and it's really important because we're spending the numbers, I think what you saw the Wall Street Journal, ARENA, International Renewable Energy Agency, these numbers are down, are up to like 1.30 or it's, I'm sorry, it's 131 trillion. Dollars and they go up every year. International Energy Agency, it's it's four trillion here, four trillion there. It's a huge, huge number, and it, it just keeps. It, we're the not going to get. We're not going to get there. The system will self-correct. You start I, to see it already. I agree uh, with you. That. Know the European energy crisis is being addressed in part by declaring natural gas and nuclear power as renewables, uh, or at least allowable under renewable designation. I think as you start constraining consumer choice, and you see growth in electricity costs and electricity unreliability as you integrate more renewables, 
people, particularly in the U.S. and EU, are going to be asking, tell me again why we're doing all of this, when in fact China, India, Russia are just pursuing, you know, legitimately, I think, the need for more energy from coal. Right. And I think that I want to talk about that, but I do want to get back to the the, the science you have to bring to bring to bear in that, because something I've explained to a lot of people and have trouble with is that we could do everything. We could do everything under the sun, everything that the International Energy Agency tells us to do, which is basically just add a bunch of wind and solar. And almost all that wind and solar is coming from China. Um, the life cycle emissions of building that wind, solar and battery are also not taken into account. And I really believe that if we did everything under the exact climate change executive order under Biden's uh, 14008, um, executive order. I, I actually think that and all the stuff that everybody's announcing, all the shovels and picks that you're putting in the ground, all the backhoes run by diesel from Caterpillar, we're going to increase emissions. There, there's not a first chance in hell that you're not going to actually increase emissions trying to fight off emissions. And then to me, it gets to this point, and I had, you know, I actually met you at, uh, at Liberty Oilfield Services Investor Day, and right. you're sitting at my table for lunch, but you spoke at the, I spoke at their day. Um, but I had, I had Chris Wright on my podcast, and, you know, it was the first podcast where he basically just said, straight up, this is not about emissions. This war that's going on really isn't about emissions because if it was about emissions, and that's what I see, that when I'm gr- ripping through the data and I'm looking at this from a t- strategic risk and analytical perspective, and I'm helping companies and folks understand how to navigate this market, this to me is very policy driven. It's very politically driven. And there are risks to that. Um, but the problem is, is that if it's the science, so basically all of us nerdy engineer people want to just measure the CO2 and say, okay, where's it coming from? How do we stop it? And when people are going after US oil and gas production, the emissions from US oil and gas production are apparently 1% of all US emissions. So you could go kill yourselves to death to get rid of those to zero, and it's going to be 1%. So the question then is, you know, no one, it, there's no liking of, of oil and gas, you know, by investors in the sector or whatever it is. So it's really then it gets to be, is it about emissions? But you talk about this when, you know, you clarify climate versus weather and you say, okay, climate is your, is the long range look of weather, right? It's not just weather events. Right. 30 years. Tend- 30, 30 years. years. Okay. okay. And that's where, so this 30 years, um, and I, w- I do want to talk about, you know, Temperature, temperatures increasing, um, actual CO2 and hurricanes, tornadoes, weather, fires, those types of things. But your 30-year horizon, I guess in that context, even with all those tornadoes, hurricanes, CO2 I mentioned, in that 30-year context, the IPCC and everything that we're banking off basically is the UN IPCC report, International Panel on Climate Change, um, that's revised every, I don't know how often. Seven years, six, seven years. The last one came out in August. Yes, and I got got it open the first Gosh, that's 100 pages just for policymakers. So I yeah, have it open. Right. It's I'm ripping through it. I looked at it in college. I remember looking at it in college, and I, um, you know, I use I looked at it as there's a lot of data that could probably be manipulated and messed with. And that was when I was, you know, student, an undergrad, looking yeah. from an the, the most recent one is 3,949 pages. It took a couple of hundred scientists three years, four years to prepare, um, and you know, it's really dense. And it yes, it gets condensed down to these summaries for policymakers, but even those are not very good summaries of what's actually in the report. And, and you meant, you talk about yeah. a ton of these reports in your book and you cite them. Is there anything in that recent report that came out in August um, that both makes the, you know, from the high degrees of confidence that they have, especially with these 1.5 degrees, especially with this 30 years, um, is there anything that sticks out to you of like the time frame in which they're measuring, their high degree of confidence, especially in yeah. temperature, so, emissions, so, weather? So, right. So uh, changes in extreme weather, uh, no great changes. They see a little bit more intensification of precipitation over land, 
than they did in the last report. But no long-term changes in hurricanes. Maybe there's something in the last couple of decades in one aspect, but they're not really sure. Uh, many other things unchanged. Um, their projections of what emissions are going to look like in the future have become less dramatic. The most extreme scenarios that appeared in previous reports have now been ruled out. And they have narrowed down the range of sensitivity of the climate, namely how much is it going to warm for a given amount of CO2. And the best projections right now, assuming things don't change very much in the center of the model uncertainties, it'll warm by about another one and a half degrees relative to where we are right now over the globe by 2100. And what I say is, given that the globe has warmed already 1.1 degrees since 1900, and during that time, we've seen the greatest increase ever in human welfare. Education, housing, standard of living, health, etc. Why do you think that another one and a half degrees or 1.4 degrees is going to derail things significantly? And in fact, the reports say it won't derail things significantly. It'll be something that we're going to have to cope with, but certainly you'd have to think really hard if you're going to upend all of society on the basis of that projection. But that, so what's the, the baseline time? So it's one degrees that it's warm from 1900, you're saying? One, and then 1.1, 1. 1. yeah. 1.1. 1. 1. Yeah. And the UNIPCC report, they're using the baseline from 1970? So, so no, uh, that 1.1 is from 1900. Right. If no, but the 1.5 that you're saying uh, to 2100. From, where does from that today or from 2000. Uh, okay. From, from about today. And yeah. is that with the scenario of if we didn't do anything or is that with uh, if we... Yeah, it's kind of a business as usual, uh, expected policies and, and so on. So doesn't that completely conflate against the, the what the IEA and many others say? Yeah, that report um, doesn't show the words climate catastrophe, existential threat, things of that sort in it at all. You can do a search of the document. It does show the words climate crisis once. And that's not a scientific finding, but it's in fact a finding of how the media have oversimplified the situation. And so when the politicians like John Kerry, President Biden, Bill Gates, Secretary of the Gen General of the UN Guterres, stand up and say, code red for humanity, I don't understand where they're getting that information from. I'd love to well, ask them. Uh, yeah. And, you know, I, th I mean, I think listeners may say, okay, well, it sounds like you're promoting uh, the, sort of an anti-climate change thing. And I'm definitely not. I, I have no interest in, um, in, in, and I'm not a climate scientist, so I'm not here to debate that. What I am here is to explain that the uh, there is a massive problem with sort of all this being hijacked. And I really see this from an analytical perspective of that January 2021, this sort of really began in earnest in the U.S. And when things change that quickly politically, there are massive ramifications because politics, um, unlike all these things, it, it's it's uh, unlike inflation, it's actually transitory. So um, politics actually changes and people get voted in and out. And the problem is, is that, you know, economic crises and, and this is being, especially in Europe, is being in 
intertwined actually within uh, monetary policy. So the European Central Bank, and you make you actually make a note about the UK and the Bank of England um, and the intertwining of folks with this. And I see it with the you know the president of the UN or the president of the COP26, the UK COP26 of this year. He was the one that asked, um, he asked Fatih Barol of the International Energy Agency to do this thought piece that was put out last summer on the net zero, the IEA's, International Energy Agency's net zero scenario. That was originally a thought piece. And then Fatih Barol said it increasingly became the best work he's ever done. Now it is literally, it is literally the linchpin behind the International Energy Agency um, that everything is net zero by 2050. And there is not a lot of credibility given to, you know, whether or not China will comply with the things that they say, or why would China say the things that they say? Because they need this buy-in. There, there are also severe risks in that because it has become so political, right? And it's become such a, a piece of you, you have to, you have to believe this, you have to move forward with it, um, and you have to be. And there's two, three. I always tell people there's three basic technologies. This isn't, this isn't actually rocket science. You know, there are other technologies and nuclear and stuff for some of them, but it's wind, solar. Um, and battery. And and it's largely wind and solar. And that's what the IEA is sort of pushing. And it becomes very politically sensitive to me uh, because almost all that wind and solar yeah. is produced in China. And I do. Th- and China does have an incredible influence in the UN, um, which is where you know people don't want to talk about this. But the UN um, is where the IPCC report is coming from. And nobody asks whether or not could China have an outsized role in this? Could they have influenced any way? Uh, maybe they haven't, and that's fine. But they do influence multiple UN bodies. They influence it whenever we're Russia and, and China are voting on anything with Iran. So to even think that they wouldn't have influenced this. And we do know that they also influence media massively because they have a huge propaganda machine. This is well documented. This is done. and that, So this is a really serious thing of, of media influence and, and promoting, you know, the fact that China is promoting climate change. Um, and you should always, we should always question when we see this promoting by certain entities of who stands to benefit so, the most. So they're promoting climate change while boosting their coal consumption and production to record levels, right? Right, and, and, and absolutely. Right. So they're, you, they're, yeah. they're causing the problem and selling the solution. Yeah, I'm, look, I, we do not have the technology today to build a grid that is simultaneously reliable, affordable, and clean. We can be doing R&D to help with that, Uh, But right now, if you want to build such a grid, it's going to cost you a fortune or the reliability is going to go down. And, you know, you ask people again, the politicians have no clue about that at all. You know, it's like the inmates are in charge of the asylum. And what disturbs me is the fact that engineers and scientists are not willing to speak up and say, this is a fantasy, Net zero by 2050 is a fantasy. And of course, all the politicians today will be gone by the time that comes to roost. But I think even the steps to get there are going to induce such a strong political backlash over the next few years in this country. They're already doing it in the UK that it's all going to crash and burn. And I I hope when that happens, people will take a much harder look at the science that's alleged to be uh, motivating all of this. Well, and I, I hope so too, because I think the the the, I, the actual data behind it. Because I would really like to see if you know when we're measuring these CO two emissions and we're seeing them just going up and up, especially in China. Um, and you know the grid is roughly seventy percent coal, and and like we said, like that that's where they're producing stuff because it's cheap and it's also it's energy security, and they have lots of coal and yeah. it's a reliable source of energy. And in the U.S., the 
the other piece I'm struggling with is here in Colorado, you know, Excel Energy, who controls all the utility, and we have companies, utility companies that control areas of the market. And they have decided for whatever reasons um, that we're going to go green tomorrow. And it's really frustrating because I come from a, um, I am third generation oil and gas. My grandfather pumped oil wells, my dad pumped oil wells, but my other grandfather was a wheat farmer. So I grew up talking about the weather, just like the Brits. And my grandpa lived till he was 88 years old. And we spent a lot of time talking about the weather and I mean, and what storms were like in the past and everything. So I always had a harder time, you know, appreciating these, this, a weather event being um, an extreme climate change, a single weather event. And yes, th- those are weather events, but those are also way more televised. Um, you make a point to talk about that tornadoes and the data point I think you have on tornadoes and maybe fires and temperatures don't completely align with this, but your data point on tornadoes was that we are measuring tornadoes better now than we were in the past. So in the past, when you say we didn't have as many tornadoes, we're measuring all of them now so we can say, yes, we have lots of tornadoes. Now, do we have the most ex- more of the most extreme tornadoes? Um, one one, do we have more, more one of those? And then two would be, are they definitely caused from human-induced climate change? And if and the ability to, I think people have this thing, it's the ability to prove that, yes, it's caused by, it's, it's definitely caused by human influence. And the reason that's so damn important is because if you're ridding your system of, if you're ridding your system of all this, these human influences, um, and there's massive, massive cost to it. And I think some people just don't care about those costs, but the grid reliability and, and everything you just talked about, that's really serious. It's actually happening. Um, we're and what I'm saying about Excel Energy here in Colorado is basically they have a plan to reduce all. Um, it was 2050. Now they moved it 2030. They get, I had three coal mines where I was from in Northwest Colorado outside of Craig. There's now two. They're going to close uh, these two by 2030. And the the uh, power plant, which uses the coal um, and exports a lot of that that power, they're actually going to get off coal entirely by I think 2028. And and I think. The, uh, Excel has announced plans to have all coal gone except one in Pueblo by 2028. And I thought, this is kind of incredible of what's the point exactly of other than you and they've said they're going to increase um, utility bills by 13%. So the consumer is paying for it and the consumer has no choice. And, and yes, coal is a is your dirt does emit more emission, lots of different things in comparison to natural gas and other forms of energy. The problem is, is it's that it, we could basically take emissions in Colorado to zero um, as tomorrow we could do that. And we would have not a dent in the bucket yeah. in terms of global CO2 emissions and CO2 emissions, to my knowledge, do not have borders. Right. So, you know, the utilities or, or more generally the corporations uh, are responding in large part to shareholder pressure, stockholder pressure. Um, and, um, you know, the right attitude is, yes, stakeholders, you want me to reduce emissions? I'm working on it. There, there may well be legitimate business reasons for shutting down coal. You probably know those as well as I do, but it's worth just repeating an aging plant that might require major refurbishment. Uh, the fact that gas is uh, probably still is cheaper than coal, uh, and you want to, um, and there will be abundant gas in the U.S. for the next many decades, uh, and and so there are perhaps reasons for doing that. What? I think should not be driving business is a misplaced belief that, as you say, they're going to have some significant effect on the global climate. Uh, Remember, the U.S. as a whole is only 13% of global emissions. And even if the U.S. as a whole were to go to zero tomorrow, it would be worked out by a decade's worth of growth in the rest of the world. 
Uh, and that growth is going to continue because they need the energy. Fossil fuels are the way to get it. And it would be immoral for us to prevent them from doing that. And these and the, the beast that people probably don't, if you're not studying geopolitics and you don't have a deep understanding of economics and, and political and economic risk, is that these countries, and I say, I sent it in my last podcast with Tatiana Matrova when we're talking about Russia, is that everybody in the developed world, um, they don't have the same standards as the U.S., right? So they don't even, not from a humanitarian perspective, from building stuff, they don't have the same environmental standards. They are going to, I mean, the International Energy Agency has the price targets that they put for what fossil fuels and crude oil will be. And it's it's some like $35 a barrel and it continues to decline. And I was telling Tatiana in the last podcast, I said, look, if it's $35 a barrel, people are going to drink this stuff in half of the world, in the developed world. I mean, if it's going to be consumed because it's so cheap um, and that, that in and of itself, yes, it would decline. You would decline investment, et cetera. But the reality is, you would have a lot. The idea is that you would have a lot of crude oil. That, that's the premise of a lot of these uh, investment, you know, engine number one, you name it, is that we're going to have too much crude oil and the world isn't going to demand it. And therefore, these business models don't exist. And the reality is that if you if you had a lot of crude oil and it was cheap, you're only going to be able to control, even in this scenario that the International Energy Agency, the UN, everyone's painting, you're only going to control the emissions from the developed world. Absolutely. And, and that's Absolutely. it. You, you're not. That's you don't it. have control for the developing world, no. and the developing world is where it's going to come from. So when you have no control of that, and then it gets to this point of, then is it really about emissions? Because if we're going to measure this, so four years from now, and we measure this, and we say, you know, whatever, we had X amount of storms, the temperatures were X, and and I say this to listeners is not. I'm not. I'm not here to debate whether climate change is happening and temperatures. I'm here to tell you that. It doesn't. I, I, nothing that the policymakers are doing, because it's politically driven, is probably going to stick, and right. the consumers right. are going to pay for it. And it's become a political movement. Um, this has become something, and it seems that Europe is stuck to it because this is this. You know, we talked about this energy crisis. You know, I, I'm holding up this article that natural gas crises uh, pushes German utilities into dash for cash. This is on the back that that the UK has already lost over 30 utility providers have went up right. under since September, right. and that they already have the highest electricity costs in the entire world. I mean, and that the monetary policy, and this is really where I have a hard time is that because, you know, I think about after listening to your book and reading it is that do monetary authorities really get into the science of what's no, actually happening? No, no, no. You, because, you know, the, the, there is a, a push, a move afoot to have companies disclose their climate risk, Right. And which is a high, what, what exactly what, does that, what does that mean? Lot, right? that would be what does that, that mean? And how is it done? And how precisely can you do that? Nobody has looked at that at all. I've started to look into it in some detail, and I'm kind of aghast at what I'm learning about how people do this. Um, well, and so, I think that's all of the the SEC talking about it. You know, Janet Yellen has been big on talking about yeah, this. Yeah. You you have heard Jerome Powell, you know, chairman of the U.S. Federal Reserve, mention climate change. But see, when he's asked in his questions, he says, look, we have two mandates. We have maximum, you know, full unemployment and price stability. They can barely handle full unemployment and price stability, let alone adding climate change. And it's not that, you know, these are important issues that people want involved, but they don't realize that the federal, the federal reserve cannot handle climate change. That's they can't they impact. No, right. No. And, you know, but the is, Bank of England thinks about that differently. They really they think that they and, need to be implementing the government's net zero policy. But what's, fan, what's, really interesting is that the Bank of England listened to the International Monetary Fund and they raised interest rates. So the International Monetary Fund warned in December that, hey, inflation's out of control. 
inter- I mean, unexpectedly, the Bank of England raised their interest rates in December. Now, how high they're going to take it to combat inflation is another story. But the reality is we do have real inflation. And the reason it's timely for this podcast and for you to be talking about this stuff, I think, in a, probably a number of forms is that this is the beginning. This is probably one of the first tests of the energy transition. Um, and and co- it coincided with COVID and many, many other factors that has caused this energy crisis. But it's a reality because renewables were a piece of this. And I think it's interesting because so the European or the European Central Bank has a different tact and they are this has massive implications for the global economy um, and just global monetary policy. And especially for 2022, what it looks like is that we see real inflation within Europe um, and it changes across the board. But the European Central Bank has said that actually inflation, it's, it's over half energy. And because it's over half energy and because we're, we're looking through the energy transition is that, you know, we're just probably going to have to eat some of this inflation. And that's a that's a stance for the European Central Bank. And they say their speech on the website is that yep. look. Well, looking through higher energy crisis, monetary policy, and the green transition. And they were on CNBC. Folks were on CNBC last night talking about it, Bloomberg, at 2 a.m. And it's really that, hey, we have an energy crisis, but you know, to get through this energy transition, we're going to have higher inflation. And this is a scary thing in that realizing uh, that the consumers are going to That's the pay. kind of stuff that makes you vote against governments, right? I mean, in talking about these things, I like to distinguish between what societies could do to reduce emissions, what they should do, which is a values judgment, weighing all the different factors we talked about, and then there's what they will do, right? which is, again, a judgment about how the politics play out. And I would say that the developed world might reduce its emissions somewhat, but there's no way the developing world is going to get off the trajectory of strongly growing emissions until they get rich enough. And that's probably not until at least the middle of the century. And will, you know, if in that time period, say, like I said, four or five years from now, when people are measuring and looking at the data and the science, if it doesn't show that, you know, one, if emissions go up and we, we yes, we're going to have continued weather events, but if it doesn't definitively show that, um, I, I actually think the media is completely biased. So I think the media is going to say if emissions are going up and we still have weather events, they're going to say this is happening anyways. But if it doesn't show that or or if, in fact, you know, we implement all the policies in the U.S. and the and, and the Europe that people say they're going to do with all the wind and solar and, in fact, the weather doesn't change. And we, you know, I mean, we have politicians in Colorado saying that when Colorado gets to net zero, um, the snow melt is coming back from what level they, they say it's coming back from. I have no idea. But they say these things. And this is uh, this is scary when this is not these things won't actually happen. Yeah. I, you know, I, you can do a back of the envelope calculation, as I do for my classes. You, you expect to see about 1,000-year weather event every month somewhere around the globe, whether it's a storm or a fire or something else. It's just simple statistics. And so if the media are interested in persuading rather than informing, they'll grab onto that event every month and tell you it's because of climate change. I mean, I, it's gotten to the point where I want to throw something at the TV or uh turn off the radio when I hear that stuff, because when you look at the data, almost all of it is just not there, whether well, it's heat wave in the Northwest or fires in the West, et cetera, et cetera. The, the long-term the, trends aren't there. 
the hurricanes. So that's where you talk when you talk about the hurricanes. This yeah. the tornadoes one was really clear. Is that the same case for you know the measuring? I feel like we probably measured hurricanes as much as we possibly can because they're bigger events. So probably not the same case with tornadoes and that we were missing some hurricanes. But in the past, yeah. we may not have. But is it the same thing for? For snow and for temperature is that, and especially temperature is where it's like, how good was the data uh, yeah, you know, hundred years it, ago on temperature? It, it's not great, but people do the best they can. One of the things that helps you is that changes in the temperature extend over large regions, about a thousand kilometers. And so if the temperature has gone up here, you can be pretty sure it's going to be going up by about a similar amount, 500 kilometers away. So that kind of lets you fill in the gaps between where you might have thermometers. I think there is no question that the globe has been getting warmer over the last century. Uh, but, you know, we were coming out of a little ice age, which was pretty cold in the uh, 17th century. So how much of the warming that we see is caused by humans and how much is caused by natural phenomena? I, I, there's still a fair bit of debate about that, okay. I would and that's say. I would say that is kind of the crux of, and I know we, we, we went on tangents to the policy side, but um, that is kind of the crux in the premise of your book is that the, the actual how much is human influencing it and whether or not we can definitively have an impact. The reason it's so serious is because of all the reasons we've talked about. Yeah, and, and so you know, I, I, I think we're influencing the temperature, uh, mm -hmm. but are we influencing severe weather events? I think it's very hard to make that case. Uh, and in fact, the IPCC, the UN panel, doesn't really try to make that case uh, with a lot of force, I think. Do you, um, do you think more yeah. folks are, since you've done this book and you've been yeah. talking to folks and you talk about the articles you've done and people, you know, criticize you, I think it was in, you know, I was just starting in my career in D.C. at a nonprofit in 2010, right out of grad school, in 2011. And that was when the, this some stuff came out you know, about uh, the stuff came out, the credibility that scientists were indeed sort of cooking the books or at least leaning into the sort of the rhetoric and everything. And I remember I had friends at banks and stuff in London who were texting me and saying, well, how big a deal is this? And, you know, it kind of got it kind of got me attention and it was quashed. And I thought, does the have you gotten, you know, positive receptions on the book or at least the questioning of it? And the reason I talked about this on the podcast is that I don't care if people disagree with me. I respect Greta Thunberg, but she's not a scientist. You know, she's an advocate. And she's also, you know, I mean, so saying blah, 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 and telling people that this is the best science available. I mean, really, is this the best science available? And then, by the way, the science evolves. So right. take it with a grain of salt. So, so, you know, I think you, there are several different pieces. If you go to the underlying science, the scientists in the trenches, the research papers they write, they're pretty good. They mm -hmm. have about as much integrity as many other fields of science. It's and you mentioned you a couple places in your book of where to find these pretty good yeah, research, yeah, right? Yeah. And when you get to the public discussion, which goes through a long chain between the assessment reports and the summaries for policymakers and the politicians, that's where it gets corrupted. And one of the reasons I wrote the book, which draws almost all of its material from the official reports and the peer-reviewed literature, is to get around that game of telephone and let people have a look at what the science is really saying. Um, and many people, you know, don't understand that there have been no detectable long-term trends in hurricanes, sea level is rising at the grand rate of a foot a century, so it's not going to inundate this us anytime soon. Lots of surprising things like that. And I've gotten a lot of thanks unsolicited from many scientists, engineers, uh, quantitative business people who 
don't have a background in climate science, but say, thanks for writing the book. It gave me a better appreciation of what this is all about, but also the way it's been misrepresented in the media. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that there is not an issue here with human influences on the climate, but it has been overblown. And the solutions that people are trying to promulgate for for this issue uh, are just not going to be effective. Right. And I think that something to, to, to frame that is that, and I, I don't think either of us are here to tell people that, you know, the opposite is happening um, or that you don't have to think about it. It's just that when we're talking about the, you know, $131 trillion or whatever the trillions is that some of that money, especially, and I bring this to the point of if you're, we're indeed not going to impact the CO2. And I, I, I think we'll probably increase it because of all the things to build out all this clean tech, I think is going to increase CO2 emissions. Then indeed, you know, if it has extreme impacts on the weather or whatever it is, then you're going to have to have mitigation efforts. And so some of that money needs to be spent in actually toward, you know, adapting to this and, and whether it's that's naturally caused climate change or whether that's human induced, whatever it is, you're going to have to put money to that. And I think that you have to have a pragmatic and thoughtful approach, especially on the policy side. And I've said this in the beginning of, I mean, I've said it well before Biden came into office, but was that, you know, you have to, if you're talking about the energy transition, if it is indeed a transition, um, and I think one, it's been an accelerated transition or talked about, it's way more accelerated in the past year. Um, but it's actually, it has to be a transition and we're not transitioning. We're just skipping from one thing to another. Or that's, that's what people want. But if it was a transition, it would involve hydrocarbons. That would mean that in the policy side, you would bring in people like me and you'd bring in people all across the hydrocarbon community that know stuff and you would bring them into the fold to actually actually say, how would we do this to make it work reliably? And by the way, I could reduce CO2 emissions in a heartbeat by pumping as much natural gas as I possibly can into the developing world. Um, and I would drop the CO2 emissions in a heartbeat. So the, I struggle with the, let's, if this is about CO2, because fossil fuels would, and I hate calling them even fossil fuels anymore. I call them damn hydrocarbons. It's oil, natural gas, and coal. You know, if they can have a big role in, in reducing this immediately. Um, but it's like, I learned a long time ago when Greenpeace um, had an article in The Economist, or somebody was writing about Greenpeace and The Economist, and this was, again, when I was in D.C., and they were talking about the offshore rigs, and they were saying, you know, once the rig is done and you have the platform and it's been a, two decades after them, they wanted them removed. They wanted those platforms removed, and I understood that. could be they're ugly, could be whatever, and they, they have changed the environment. Um, uh, they haven't actually hurt the environment. In fact, they've, they've probably benefited to many degrees. The fish lots like of, it. Yeah, the fish, the fish like it. People yeah. dive off of it. It, it gives yeah. lots of money to the, the, I mean, the actual oil companies pay taxes on that that platform forever to the states and local governments. But Greenpeace said, we want them gone. Not, And it was all the all the uh, people, the ocean people who were, or the environmental people on the ocean, didn't want them removed because now that they've already been there, yes, they may have an impact when they're, but removing them would have caused destruction to the environment in the ocean. And I thought, so Greenpeace wasn't about the environment. It was simply about, if that was hurting the, if that was hurting the ocean environment, then it wasn't about the environment. It was about, and I say this is important because I think it's different between, you know, the extreme climate change, we're all dying tomorrow versus being an environmentalist, um, which is very, very different. And um, these have all got kind of characterized differently, but that's different from this. That's why I say these, these entities like Greenpeace, they're not about, it's just anti-oil. All all of these issues are complicated. They involve many different considerations. Um, And we do not have right now a thoughtful, informed plan about how you would make such a transition, integrating technology, economics, regulation, behavior, and so on. 
The ones that exist have been put together by, if you'll excuse me, a bunch of academics and activists. Mm -hmm. And you really need to involve the industry in trying to make this happen. And we have not done that. And so you see, you know, ridiculous situations where the administration is trying to curtail domestic oil and gas production at the same time as it's urging OPEC to open up the taps more, as we saw Biden doing uh, a month ago. Right? It's just completely crazy. All right. Yep. We've got time to solve this problem and we will do it most gracefully if we take the time to think it through develop the technologies, and gradually introduce it. But uh, again, there are single-issue entities like Greenpeace and politicians, for whatever reason, who, who are going to do real damage, I think, to society's systems and the geopolitical standing of the U.S. if they make things happen as rapidly and as sweepingly as is being proposed. Right. And I think the problem with that is that if you're not calling it a crisis and you're not getting people agitated and activated, then you can't have a movement and, you right. know, you can't have right. this policies underpinning it. And I think so much of um, so much of buckets of parties have sort of latched onto it. And it's the way you throw everything in under the kitchen sink in it. Right. You throw all the kinds of spending and everything. And I point out to people, you know, the fact that we had an opposition, uh, you know, Joe Manchin basically opposed the big spending bill, the infrastructure bill. And it's not, I don't point this out for politics per se, I point this out for the, the impact of the market, was when Joe Manchin said on Sunday night in December that he wasn't going to approve this bill, um, Chinese solar talks stocks took a dive. Um, and that is because $550 billion of that bill was going to green energy and there's stuff. There's money we'll, to be made here, right. Right. Yes. And That's money, true. you know, there's a lot of money um, that, that can be made. And I think people really don't appreciate it. And a lot of these young people and activists and stuff, they're anti-corporation. They're anti-big money. And they really should be following the money, in my opinion, is that holy crap, People have gotten rich off this because when you throw, I mean, Bloomberg Green, just the Bloomberg's emphasis, and you mentioned in your book as well, um, but Bloomberg does not do a very good job criticizing China. Um, they clearly have their biases and how they report information and everything. They, they cover stuff, but they only cover it. You know, I'm the one that has to read the articles and then tell the listeners they're not going to promote it. You know, they'll put the article out there, but they're not going to promote it. And I think that the, the, the money that's involved in it, the advocacy that's involved in it, it's really important to look at um, because that that's where things get corrupt. That's what people said about oil, you know, the oil industry and the oil industry didn't admit enough on climate change and the oil industry influence, wants to influence reports and, and Saudi Arabia wants to influence reports. Well, what about China trying to influence reports? What about China yeah, trying right. to, you know, push I the the narrative of, of climate change. Everybody's got an agenda of one thought or another. My agenda, frankly, is to improve understanding. I Absolutely. think one of the best ways that we can get ourselves out of the mess we have created with climate and energy policy is by informing people about how systems in society work, whether it's the energy system, whether it's the financial system, the logistics system, these are very complicated enterprises. And if you start messing with them in a random way, as is fact is happening with the energy system, you're going to do great damage. So let's get people to understand first just how important hydrocarbons are currently, what the alternatives are, what the advantages and drawbacks, and then we can have a good discussion about what to do. Absolutely. And I, I think with that, I would I wouldn't want to revert back to some of the nerdy stuff. And I would like to talk about 
albedo and defining mm-hmm. that. Um, and because you, you do a great job in the book of defining that. I had to Google it a couple of times. I still don't understand extreme, but I'd love to understand this and kind of the earth breathing and the long-term changes. Yep. And I, so I want to touch on albedo and I want to touch on some of the errors that are actually admitted within the reports and, or, or also the degrees of confidence. So that's something that you see like when the International Energy Agency does their net zero thing, they say basically if we do all of this, we have a 52% probability. And I, I'm like, oh, 52% probability. That's a little scary to me. That's an F. That's that's not a good score to me that if we killed ourselves and did all this stuff that would have 52% probability. And I see things, you know, in the IPCC reports, these degrees of confidence that some are high and some are not so high. And you you cite some of these errors of that some are high, but then there, there's some errors even behind it. But most of them are kind of medium confident. A lot of things are medium confident. So if you mind touching on those two things, the albedo and the science yeah. and stuff. And so then so the- let's, let's talk about the albedo. Um, so, so the Earth's temperature is set at the very highest level, kind of a cartoon almost, as a balance between how much of the sunlight gets absorbed versus how much that gets emitted as heat back into space. And the sunlight that gets absorbed is determined by how much the planet reflects versus how much comes in. And, of course, the planet reflects sunlight, the clouds, the ice and snow on the poles are all pretty reflective. And on average, the planet reflects about 30% of the sunlight that comes in. The other 70% get absorbed. It drives the winds and the currents, heats up the ground, etc., and eventually gets emitted back to space by uh, heat radiation, infrared radiation. So the temperature is set by the balance of those two. And if you change the average albedo from 0.30, as I said, it's about 30%, to 0.31, make the Earth a little bit more shiny, it would absorb a little bit less sunlight, and so the temperature would drop. And the temperature would drop by just about as much as is being increased by the CO2 that we're emitting. Okay, So it's very sensitive, the difference between 0.30 and 0.31. Uh, and it's something that we need to know and understand how it varies naturally, because all these things are just averages. They change up and down with the seasons and from year to year and so on. And do you think, so do we know that well? I mean, it is extremely no, sensitive. And it's how, very are we hard getting to, better? It's very hard to measure it with the precision that uh, is needed. Uh, we do it with satellites, and they've got some precision. I started a project 30 years ago to do it by watching the moon. And over the last 15 years, we've seen the albedo increase a little, uh, decrease a little bit, enough to account for some of the warming that we've seen, a good fraction of it. The satellites see the same. So, you know, there are lots of natural variations in the system that we got to understand before we can say, aha, that's CO2. Right. And But there's decent, there's a lot of correlations. Um, there are a lot of correlations, and- right? And what we really need are more long-term measurements because these natural variations, some of them can happen over decades, and we need to have the precision to be able to... Uh, see that variation. Right. And there's also risk that, so there's a risk is that, yes, it's it, CO2 is, is likely a cause, but if there's other things, small factors or different changes in the, the gazillion different variables, and we're not paying attention to those, 
they should be paid attention to in conjunction with Because you could overestimate or underestimate how much of a role CO2 is playing. Right. So that's a, that's an excellent, uh, uh, so if you like the nerdy science stuff and the stuff, it's, the book is well worth listening to. And also I, I going back an, to the, I've been a nerd for 60 years in my life. Or that's something great. Like so you that, fit you know. in very well on the proud of it, podcast. proud of it. I am proud of it as well. So, okay. From that, then can we, these sort of air, these degrees of confidence. So you talk about the degrees of confidence and it, if anyone, if you pull up the IPCC reports or any of these reports, you see these confidence intervals and medium confidence, high degree of confidence, that's every likely unlikely. Um, and then you talk, about sort of the the errors being admitted within the reports and is there I mean there's obviously probably some complicit things by the media of course they're not going to look at that I mean they probably don't even see it um but are more people since you published the book or since you talked about other folks that you know really look at this and say yeah you know there are quite a few errors they're admitted or this like basically once between the degrees of confidence and then reading some of the errors or reading this some of the things that it's like well it's not nearly as scary um as people think yeah, or it's I, not nearly as definitive, I guess. Right. So, so there were two reasons, at least two reasons, to write the book. Uh, one was to tell people about the science and give them a framework to think about it and how we might respond. But the other is to hold up some outstanding examples of how the media and politicians misportray either the science itself or the certainty with which we understand things. And there are some wonderful examples uh, having to do with hurricanes, fires, sea level rise, extreme temperatures, and so on, to go through the book. I think many people I've heard, and you know, we've sold uh, 130,000 copies or so of the book, um, people have said, um, gee, thank you for showing me what the real state of the science is. Science is intrinsically uncertain. And it's about reducing the uncertainty rather than, uh, you know, the kind of certain facts that we learn in school about DNA being the code of life or uh, things of that sort. Um, and, and so, I, and I think, you know, the COVID situation has really driven home to the public in a different way, just how uncertain science can be, particularly when you need to apply it to public policy. So, so I hope that, you know, some of the people who say the science is settled uh, are now being forced to put up the goods, so to speak, and please show me that. And that other people um, are perhaps being heard when they say, you know, even the reports say this is not so certain, 50% chance or whatever. By the way, I'm appalled that the report you cited said 53%. How do you know it to two significant figures? Come on, anybody who understands numbers would say 50-50, uh, about even 53%. Come on. It was a, and it, that, that, that sort of, it was this 52% probability just caught my eye because I thought, well, you know, you're, you're, you're saying all this stuff. And the real problem is that, so you, you frame that really well. And, and the book does you, the reference points and everything. And I like it because you can go back in my research. I listen to podcasts, I read books and articles, and I go back and I find the actual sources. So the book does a great job with that. You can actually find the sources and go through these reports. And, um, and it basically just says where things have high degrees of confidence, where things have low, where there's errors, where things are admitted. Um, and again, the whole point of sort of talking about all this is not that, uh, that the, uh, 
the, it's just that the doomsday scenario being painted and that when people say the client, the science is settled, well, no, I mean, the science ha- tends to evolve. Any studies tend to evolve. And when people say, like Greta Thunberg say, the best available, this is the best, people say that this is the best available science. Well, really? I mean, and can it get better? I mean, the fact that, you know, we're willing to spend $131 trillion on wind and solar only from China. So I would assume that we could spend a little bit of money on studying this a little bit better. And it just the, the outsized role of the, the biases and the influence and the agenda setting and the people feeling really great when they get rid of their plastic straws, that's not going to, it's not going to dent anything, um, you know, but that's, people feel really good about it. And people feeling good is one thing, doing something is another. Um, and really understanding the impact um, of the the real, real impact. And I think the tangible impacts of this to humans, um, and again, you know, I mentioned the European Central Bank before, but they've actually admitted in, in both these speeches I was referencing, they've admitted that people are not adequately heating their homes in Europe because of the price of energy. And to say that in 2021, to say that you are not, you have people in the developed world, not adequately heating their homes. This is already the energy crisis and energy prices are impacting the health and livelihoods of people. And, you know, the, the protests that started in Kazakhstan were originally supposedly, I mean, there's some debate on, it, but about the price of, of LPG or liquefied petroleum gas. I mean, going up, I mean, the yellow vest movement in France was about the increase of gas prices. I mean, energy prices and inflation, which we both have now, are very, very huge. But the fact when the European Central Bank admits that people are not adequately heating their homes, that's really, really scary. Yeah. And we'd better pay attention to that first before we worry about any long-term issues in reducing emissions. You know, what I hope people will take away from the book is an appropriately skeptical attitude. You know, you just told me storms are getting worse, right, In on the news report or something, right? Well, let's go look at the actual data. And when you do that, you find, in fact, the reports say there's no increase in mid-latitude storms at all that we've been able to detect. And same story for hurricanes, right? So people should be a little bit skeptical. And as you say, the sources are available out there. They can look them up and then start asking the doomsdayers some hard questions. Yeah, I think that's a that's a great way to to close and end the podcast. And I think it's it is. I mean, I'm constantly asking hard questions to people and and pushing the envelope of the line. And I think as long as you're open minded and you're willing to study the stuff, it's great. And these types of debates should be happening because because the degree of the role of of how we're sort of spending money and the policy making and everything, um, and whether or not it will actually have an impact. And I think those things are very very serious. Um, so Stephen, I know you have a you you probably have other podcasts and multiple phone calls and things to do today. So. So um, with that, I really appreciate you coming on the podcast. Um, Thank you so much for taking the time and uh, awesome book. And hope you guys take a listen. A pleasure talking with you, Tricia. Thank you so much. Bye, guys.